You're now tuned into the Fully Booked Podcast with Mace, French and Pox. Enjoy the listen. Where to go? Tell me where to go. Welcome to another episode of Hashtag Fully Boots Meets. You have myself, Mace. Myself, French. Myself, Andrew. And today we are joined by a guest that goes by the name of, well, he wants to go by the name of Chris. Yeah. So let's clap him in, guys. Thanks for coming down. Thanks for coming down, No worries. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I don't know too much about Chris. Mm -hmm. I don't know too much about yourself. So I want you to kind of get into it. I mean, Pox, I think you built the relationship with Chris and you yeah. kind of suggested you come onto the onto the Fully Book Meets podcast. Yeah. Do you want to maybe give some what some of the background to what you know about Chris and then we we'll let Chris take over? Yeah, so I've known Chris, well, I mean, the one I've, I've known Chris for a long, long time, I'll say minimum, probably 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, minimum 10 years. And mm -hmm. obviously I encountered Chris or came across Chris um, within football. So when I, when I first joined this independent academy, mm -hmm. um, Chris, I think, was signed to Fulham already okay and obviously where i say this intriguing story or what chris may be made of old obviously during this this conversation is uh where things changed for me is obviously when i was i was coaching him one-to-one -one before he went to arsenal and as i was telling you french um there was times when we'd be having these sessions and i might be late as such or even after and i'll see him sitting by the tree reading a book mm -hmm. and although we had a relationship already um i think our relationship got a lot stronger following me asking him questions in terms of what he's reading, why he's reading. Then mm -hmm. every now and then I'm asking what he's, what is he reading? Anything you can recommend me? And I think that's been maybe an ongoing theme. I'm going to say ever since then. So I'm going to say, mate, when did you go to Arsenal? I was about 13, I think. I think it was 2010. So yeah, hold on, yeah, just 13. to rewind back. So the ages when you're one-to-one -one training him and he's, and you're pulling up late and he's got a book in his hand. How old are you? 12? I'm like 12, 13. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so it's really, yeah, yeah. So, and I was asking him for recommendations at that age um, mm -hmm. as to what he's reading because he's reading, he's reading books, books. I was quite heavy into reading at that moment in time. I'm not too, not that I don't know why, but. You have an absolute laugh. Comments. <laughs> anyway, mm. I was heavy into reading at that moment in time. And um, yeah, I was just very interested in as to what he mm -hmm. was reading. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Chris, tell me a bit about your history, man. Like, I've, I've heard an accent straight yeah, away. Yeah, so yeah. tell me, just tell me a bit about, like, where you're from, where you grew up, mm -hmm. where the accent comes from, um, and so then we'll get into it. Pretty much, like, I was born and raised in Northwest London. Like, my parents are from Congo, both of them. And then me and my siblings were all born in London. Yeah. Um, like Andrew said, I, uh, I got scouted. I think football has been, like, a huge part of my life the entire time. Yeah. I got scouted when I was about nine or ten in school joined IFA where Andrew came to coach and mm -hmm. I was probably there maybe just under a year before I got signed for Fulham. Okay. Spent about two seasons at Fulham, mm. then moved to Arsenal after that. And then after Arsenal, after about six months after I left Arsenal. How long about, was you at Arsenal for? So I was at Arsenal for about three years. Okay. Until I was 16. And then 16, after leaving Arsenal, I moved to America. So I've been living in America pretty much for the last like seven years. It doesn't seem like, it doesn't feel like it, but it's like, yeah, I was like counting it the other day. It's been like seven years just been in America, living out there. So what was you doing out in America? So I went to school out in America. I went to uni mm -hmm. out in America. And then when I graduated, I pretty much just stayed behind, started working and just, yeah, kind of finding my way. It was a, a lot. There's kind of a lot that happened in that process but yeah we're gonna get on to that yeah um so tell me just so i can i can get the transition clear in my head mm -hmm. 16 you leave arsenal was the region left arsenal to move to america or was it just no. didn't work out or um so it got to 16 and like the scholarship process and everything was happening and then um didn't get a scholarship yeah was kind of trying to kind of figure it out at 16 that was kind of a crazy time in my yeah. life yeah because like um like Andrew's known my father as well. Like as long as we've been, he wasn't really there. It was kind of me kind of figuring it out on my own. I'd lost my cousin. He had mm. got killed and another close friend had also died. So during that period of leaving Arsenal, the phone's ringing, all these teams are calling, like we want you yeah, to come yeah, and yeah, kind yeah. of do that kind of process. And it was kind of like, all right, I need to kind of take a step back. Because at that age, at 16, I'd also realized like a few other things just about myself as a person that kind of influenced my decision to go to America. So like going to America wasn't the first option. It was almost like the last resort, but it was 
the resort that I needed because the offer had been on the table for about like a year prior. So it actually connects to who I was playing with and who was around me at the time, the reason why I ended up going to America. And like a lot of people don't actually know like that part of the story. That'd be interesting because I, I want you to tell your story, but I think, how old are you now? 23. 23, so you were 16. So there's quite there's a few things I look back and obviously because I was mm -hmm. probably 23, 24 yeah. at the time and I look back and I think to myself, there's certain things you said to me which made me think... Um, I mean, like, I don't, I could be wrong. You tell me better. Yeah. All right. So, by and large, I don't say everyone gets a scholarship at Arsenal, but by and large, if you've been there for a period of time, yeah. more often than not, you get a scholarship, you get a pro, all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of things attached to your move to, Ars move to yeah. Arsenal, which made it very, very complicated. Yeah, and yeah. I remember one day in particular, I was going down the North Circle and I thought, let me just swing by Chris's. Like, yeah. it's just right there. Swung, swung by, obviously, gave you a call and you came out and we started talking. And um, I was actually. Um, surprised that you went at training and you yeah. explained I ain't been training for like a year or six months and I was like I sat back and I think then I rang um, Eugene to have a conversation yeah. with him in regards to why you have been training and at that point I think there was something you said you seem like almost resigned to like I'm not going to be at, like, I'm not going to be Arsenal I couldn't even care less if I'm a footballer if I'm honest it wasn't really a part of your mm. Your, your, your thinking at the moment in time was a yeah. case of I read these books I love reading these books yeah. or not necessarily about the books it was like I've got a bigger like, mm -hmm. I got, I'm thinking about something else. I'm not yeah. really thinking about playing football. Yeah. Whereas for, well, we, we got another mutual friend, obviously, mm -hmm. who was at Arsenal at the time as well. We might have one or two others as well. But for kids at that age or anyone who's 15, 16 at the moment in time, to play for Arsenal is, yeah. is a big thing. Big it's yeah. massive. It's not, and you yeah. went for money. So it's not like you went... Yeah. You as in Arsenal signing from Fulham for money. For money yeah, yeah, so you yeah, yeah. signed for money and yeah. there was big add-on fees and so on and so forth, wow. which mm -hmm. complicated yeah, exactly, yeah. your scholarship process. Yeah. Truth be told, because if you've just been signed, signed, yeah, yeah. I don't think it would have been an issue no. as to you getting a scholarship and potentially getting a pro. Like those add-ons and all those things, those are things that I realised in hindsight made it difficult. But what I didn't realise in the time was those things made it difficult to transition and go other places. And that's where it got crazy. Other football clubs. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's where it got like really like crazy. But, I didn't know some of that, but okay. But like even in the sense like, yeah, like being bought from one club to another and even my entire time at Arsenal, even the nature of that deal, like my understanding of what the deal was, was a fee was paid and that was it. Mm. So I was like, okay, now I'm at Arsenal, everything's taken care of. I wasn't aware of those add-ons and what those add-ons were until looking back in hindsight. And now that I look back, there's certain things that happened when I was at Arsenal that I go, okay, this makes sense now. Yeah, so, so, um, so yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, it was only when, obviously, I arrived at your house and you told me mm -hmm. about your injuries and stuff like that. First thing I thought, this is a problem. If he hasn't been in six months, because one of the famous quotes I remember saying at the time and someone saying to me was, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And I even thought about this a couple of days ago. I thought to myself, what could have been done different? One of the conversations yeah. where... Things got funny. Was yeah. um, I said, um, um, like someone really should have been in contact with you and had that conversation and taken you through that process if you weren't going, you weren't going to train because yeah. obviously you're 15, 16 at the time and you're dealing with um, senior people, obviously, at a football club. It's mm -hmm. not really appropriate, dare I say. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, um, definitely. And it just, I, I think it just made things difficult, really. Yeah. You know, things could have been handled maybe a lot better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know we've touched on the books and I promise we're going to swing back round to the books Yeah, but I just, just for clarity for, for my mind and clarity for those listening because you might have some young footballers up and coming mm. some parents of young footballers who are listening what things just I, I, and I don't know much about what goes mm. on with the deals mm -hmm. what kind of things in your deal made it difficult for A you to progress at Arsenal essentially but also and B and maybe more importantly you to actually find another team that, that wanted you okay. what kind of things that you know of were included mm -hmm. which, which maybe people might want to know about um, to look out for so like I guess one of the biggest like mistakes that I made at the time is like just not understanding like the nature of the game like it's a business first so it's you, like you mention this often Pete. Yeah. with anything like if I spend money on something I want to see a return mm -hmm. if I don't see that return I'm not going to be happy about it mm -hmm. so to an extent it was almost like when that was done it's almost like okay they've spent this X amount of money that's money that they want to see back so like, I remember there was a period where in that period where I wasn't going anywhere and I was kind of stepping back and like kind of an analyzing things. And I don't know if you remember this because there was a period where I spoke to those teams and was like, all right, let me figure out what's going on in my like personal life. Blah, blah, blah. I get back to you cool so I can come through for like other trials and stuff like that. That happens. And then 
Two weeks later, I pick up the phone again to call back to these same teams that will call me. And within the span of two weeks, it's like a 360s flip. Mm. It's like, yeah, you know, we're going to da 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 da. So I remember being confused and calling Huge at the time. And you just hit me back and asked me if I've been to this place or this place, but I haven't left my house. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, where's that come from? Like, I haven't been anywhere, but other people are under the impression that I've gone here and I've gone there, but I haven't gone anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, and like, you just know me since I was like nine, 10 as well. Like, he's not someone that you can like BS. So mm-hmm. like, there's no point in me lying to him because he makes two phone calls and he knows the truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But even he questioned me as like, are you sure you didn't go here or go there? So in that time, we tried a couple other things. Those didn't work either. So I was just kind of like, I was already, like Andrew said, at the point where I was a little bit beyond it. But like to go back to your original point, just understanding that it is a business. Like as much as they care about you, they're protecting what's most important to them. Mm. You know, as long as you're valuable to a club, they're going to treat you the way they you understand. And just knowing that. But also from a parental standpoint, it's more so just having the grit to understand that, yo, this is a doggy dog business. If you want your son to thrive in this, your son has to have tough skin, but you also have to have tough skin. A lot of the times, not just the child, but the parents get sold a dream and think that they're in this fantasy island. My kid plays for this team and that team. And they forget that, yo, your kid is going to get blinded by the lights. It's a kid. They like shiny things. Mm -hmm. It's your job as a parent to regulate that. Mm -hmm. And I think in my situation, just not having my father, don't get me wrong, my mother was always there. She'd take me to games when she could, but she wasn't really, she didn't understand the game. Mm. I didn't have someone who was right next to me who understood it. My dad was away traveling all the time. He wasn't there anymore. So I didn't have that kind of parental figure to walk in the training ground with me for them to kind of look at that and be like, okay, there's someone solid there. We got to treat this accordingly, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So I think it's on both ends, but I, looking back at it, I was really just holding myself accountable, like the mistakes that I made, being a bit naive, being a bit young as well. If there was things that I could have done on that end, it would have been on that end, like understanding like, yo, like, and I feel like if I had known the the nature of the deal also, it would have changed the way I moved as well. Because I'm thinking, okay, this is done. This is taken care of. I'm moving at, you know, like this, but knowing that there, it was worth so much more and there was much more on the line, it kind of would have been like motivation step on and be like, yo, you got to prove a bit, you got to prove, you got a lot more to prove that this deal is worth everything that it's worth. Mm-hmm. But at the time I, I had no idea what it was worth. Mm-hmm. So just touching on what he said, because I was saying that I lost my thought. Um, <clears throat> what I thought was um, he probably should have been at training, even though he was injured for someone to look over him. So that outside, out of mind thing, if he's mm-hmm. there, at least people know he's in the building mm-hmm. um, considering they paid for him. So he's in yeah. the building and they know exactly how he is rather than being at home. And now they're looking at, they've got another, they've got players all over the place. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. they, they, can, they can look and they can see and look after them rather than mm-hmm. obviously Chris being at home. How does, so I know you said you moved to America to study. Did you move at the age of 16 or 18 or? No, I moved at, I was still 16 when I moved and then I started so like, this is even another crazy thing because I didn't think about these things until after. So I moved at 16 and I started uni in America when I had just turned 17. So I started crazy young. Right, I was about to get to that point. Yes. What, what prompted the move to yeah. America? So again, so to go back to when I was still at Arsenal, like the last couple of games that I had played prior to me leaving, this was the period where they were bringing in the new batch. Mm. They were bringing in the new batch that you could you could see what was about to happen before it happened. In comes Hector, in comes Gideon Zalem, in comes all these, these foreign kids that came together. There's a couple more that didn't quite get there, but it was like a batch of seven. Serge, Nabry, mm-hmm. Christoph Olsen, all great players. And there was a couple others. So you could see what was happening. But right when Gideon was coming, the school that I ended up going to was the school that Gideon was supposed to go to. So they had sent people over to watch Gideon while he was here to see if he's actually going to do the deal because they still weren't sure. Mm-hmm. And when they came and saw him, they had contacted his dad and said, what's, what's this kid's situation? And they got in contact with me like that. But when they first got in contact with me, I wasn't really thinking about America as an option. It was just kind of, right, let's put this to one side and let's handle what's going on here. And so that was how I ended up going to America like that. Yeah. Okay. And then that pretty much prompted it. And by the, by the time I like got to the point where I knew I wanted to go to America, 
it was more so like resetting. It's like let's reset, clean start. Let's clean start. Let's go figure out who I am away from this ball. Because the one thing playing football at that level does is you get so wrapped up in playing football, you forget that you're a human being before that. It's like anything. You forget that you're a human being before any of these things. Like before you're a doctor, before you're a lawyer, you're a human being first. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know that person, then the rest of it is useless. And I, I grew up thinking if I do certain things, I'm not going to be that person just to like leave Arsenal and realize I was that person that I wasn't trying to be. So that was kind of where I was at when I decided like, all right, let's go figure this out. Mm -hmm. So what part of America did you move to? Uh, um, I moved to DC. Yeah. I spent six, seven months in DC, which I think was the most important period of my life. And then I moved to Virginia to start school in that fall. And I spent a year and a half in Virginia before moving back to DC where I've been. Since? since yeah, since. So did any family move with you? you got nah, it was just me. Wow, at that age? Yeah. So what did I do? Like, so you go over there. Mm -hmm. Virginia's where you went. No, was Virginia's where you went. You went to, DC first. Yeah, 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 DC first. Virginia's where you went to uni. Yeah, that's where I went to uni. So when you were in DC first, who you staying with? So they had put me up with a host family okay. to stay for those six, seven months. Who say they? Who's they? So the uni had okay. set me up with a host family. So I had landed in Virginia to go see the school. And then they basically put me in DC to go like kind of just stay active before coming in. Because, yeah, to go play that full. And the way, like, America seasons are set up, it's not like the 11-month season. you got your full season and then your spring season. But the mm. spring season, there's no real season. So mm -hmm. it's just practicing and playing so a couple friendlies and stuff. Mm -hmm. So you've done uni now. You moved back to um, D.C. Are you con what are you doing right now in America? Oh, no. So I didn't finish uni in Virginia. I okay. left Virginia. Okay. And then I went, I transferred to a school in DC. Okay. And I finished in DC. Okay. So I was about like a year and a half and then like two and a half in DC. I thought, yeah, yeah. Finished in DC and then I started working for a sports company. And um, so I was doing two things. I was doing research and I was also working for this sports company. And that was just coaching, but like more like, psychology involved as well because i went to school for psychology so it was like trying to combine the two trying to figure out a way to combine the two and like work with programs and different programs and stuff like that okay no it's gonna because i'm gonna flip back onto the books now okay because i'm interested in the books yeah why or how a 12 13 year old is reading books mm -hmm. that someone 10 years old or so wants yeah. wants to know can you recommend me a book what's that book yeah yeah where does this stem from? Tell me about your, your love of books. Uh -huh. Tell me about books you've read. Um, so reading books, I say it was like a two kind of part, like push. And it was it was basically two teachers that I had. Wait, this um, is like primary school here? One's primary school, one's secondary school. So my first teacher in primary school, this is probably like year four, year five. You know, like in primary school, they give you those tasks, like you got to read a book a week and then you got to write like a... In our school, it was you either had to rewrite the ending... You had to write a summary and then maybe an illustration. So we'd get that every week and I wasn't really doing it. I was half like, I was half arsing it, but they'd asked me to read in class and they could tell like he's reading way above like his age. So it was level one to five and like year four, year five, the average is like level three or four. Mm. You got maybe four or five kids on f level five and not till like year five, you might have one kid on level six. So I was probably on like level five in year four, which was still ahead. And they were like, he's not really engaging here. So we're going to try push him up to six. But when they pushed me up to six, the same thing was happening. So I remember they put me in a room, kind of similar to this, that was like in between classrooms and asked me to read like a level six book and then like tell them what's happening. Mm -hmm. And they're like, he gets this too. So like, where's the disconnect? So after like a little while, my teacher at the time calls my mom in and kind of says, look, we know he can read. We know his comprehension level is good. We just think probably the books aren't engaging him. Take him to the library let him find something that might grab him. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Like my mom got me a library card, Oakington Manor Library. It's not there no more. It was in Wembley. Mm. And she take me to the library, but it still hadn't clicked. I would pull books out of the library, leave them in my room. When it's time to return them, return them. <laughs> but maybe the third or fourth time, she's got the late charge from the library. Yeah. <laughs> so she's come in the room like mad, like where's the book? 
And she's seen it on the shelf, but it's been there so long, it's got dust on it. Yeah. So she's like, I know you haven't read this one and I put my money on it. You haven't read any of the other ones that you took out. So she said, we're going to the library and we're not leaving until you find something you're going to read. Mm-hmm. And you know, like when you're a kid, because you haven't lived as long, time feels like much longer. So we could have been there in there two hours, but it felt like six. Mm. And I was, I was trying to run game on her. I was like, yo, I'm going to walk away, come back in 10 minutes, be like, I can't find nothing. Mm. And every time I came back, she wasn't having it to the point where it got to one point where she wouldn't even look at me. I just come back. I was crying, all of that. Like, mom, let's go, let's go. She's like, uh-uh, go. So eventually I gave in, I caved in and I just like remember going to find one book and it was like the side of it was orange and it had bang on it. I never forget. It was a book by Sharon G. Flake called Bang. It was orange, pull it out. The front cover had a black kid that looked like me. And um, I remember it specifically because like I've always like one of the things that people used to like grill me about was my ears. My ears always stuck out. So they used to call me Dumbo and stuff like that. Is that you're going your dreads? Nah, not really though. That was kind of like a whole other thing that happened. But I never, and I never really took it personally because, like, even like when I was like younger, girls always loved my ears. So I was like, if the man them are dissing me for my ears, but the girls love me, what do I care? <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, who am That's I trying to impress it? Who am I really trying to impress it? Do you know what I'm saying? So I didn't really mind it to be honest. So then, bang, read that. I breezed through that book like probably in less than a week. I know I finished that book because like I couldn't put it down, and it was a story about a black kid similar to like most black kids who grew up in impoverished neighborhoods trying to navigate that and his dad being not his dad lived like around the corner from him yeah. but he was never around and mm. he used to just try to tackle that with his friends as they got older they start seeing stuff they're walking by like crack houses etc till his dad comes back in his life and says look but he's unapologetic he's mm. kind of just like yo like what do i have to be sorry for so he takes him and his best friend on a camping trip and he leaves them at the campsite far out and says, your mission is to find your way back home. Mm. And that's basically the premise of like the book. Mm. And that was the first book I read from back to front. And like, that was the first one. But the problem with after that was every book I was looking for was a replication of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I fell back into the same cycle of not reading anything. Cause it was like, if it's not like this, I don't mm. care. But then I got to secondary school and this was like the one that kind of set over the top. My French teacher, Miss Kelly, like she was a, she kind of let me be the class count for like a year from year seven to year eight. And as she got to know me, I, I didn't realize until after like she was just studying me. Like, why is this guy a clown? But I grew up speaking French at yeah, home. Congolese, yeah. So I could skate through the class yeah, without yeah, doing much yeah. until one day she stuck it on me, held me off the school and it's kind of like, and I went to an all boys school. So for like a, now I can see like for a woman to be a teacher in an all boys school, you have to be great. Otherwise they're going to roll on you. Mm. So she was just like a no nonsense. She's just sat me down and was like, listen, you're an idiot. And she was just kind of like, you got potential inside you that I can see that you probably can't even see right now. And if you don't get it together, you're going to waste it. You need to find new friends and you need to get your ish together. And I remember like it was yesterday, she took, she uh, took a book after she explained to me like what her plan was, what her goal was, where she was going, how she wasn't going to be teaching for long. And she said, this is temporary. She took a book, shoved it in my chest and was like, read it. I'm giving this to you. But she was like, I'm not giving it to you to keep. I'm giving it to you to read and give back to me, which means you got a couple of days to get through this. Mm. And the first book she gave me was Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. <laughs> Lord, ah, you're 12. Got, this is yours. I'm at 12. You know, I just got shivers. Like, I'm 12. <laughs> I just got shivers. Like, it, was, it was crazy. Hard, but, hard, hard. And then she, she gave me like two or three books. So she gave me that book. She gave me another Napoleon Hill book that was like more of a formula book. Yeah. And then I think the last book she gave me was Think and Grow Rich. No, it was um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to talk about that. Yeah, so those were the three books she gave me before she ended up leaving. And like, she was the real deal because a year later, she would still call and ask about me. And we'd talk about books and everything she said that she was going to do, she did. did. Mm. So at that point, when she gave me those books and I was reading through those, at first, I don't even like, Think and Grow Rich, like for a 12-year-old, that's Mm. a heavy book. Right, but So at the start, I don't think I really liked it. It was more of a test. Like you gave me a test, I'm not losing. Like Mm. I have to, and then eventually it's like, okay, I'm starting to pick up what this is about. And once that happened, it was out of here. Like that's, yeah, nonstop. Yeah. And that's pretty much how like I got into books. And then at first I was really only reading like, self-help books and books yeah. about business and all those yeah, kind of yeah, things yeah. it wasn't until i got a little bit older 
I started reading other things as well and started incorporating like a more holistic like reading approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you read, do you take notes and that? Especially, do you know what? Let's just kind of jump, stay with Think and Grow Rich. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you first initially read that book, yeah, how, how did you take it in? I had to take notes because some of it was so big. If I didn't write it down and come back to it, I wouldn't. It would just skip me. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it was reading things over and over again, taking notes, highlighting. And that's kind of how I read now. It's like taking notes, highlighting everything that I need to come back to. I usually have like post-it notes. I leave, slap them in a book, dissect it. And now I'm I'm really big on reading books over again. Mm. Before I'd read it once and be done with it. But I started to realize like when you're reading books, you're really reading yourself. Do you know what I'm saying? So I told you about some more shivers. Yeah, and it, it took me a little while to get there, but like it's like you read something once, you put it down, you go out, you experience life, you come back, you read it again. Mm. It's a completely different mm-hmm. book. Yeah. But the words haven't changed. The only thing that's changed is you. Mm-hmm. So you start to understand that it's you that's, that you're reading. You're projecting yourself onto that book and taking it back. So that kind of information. And when I started understanding that, it was like, all right, pick things up a second time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you might have to pick it up a third time. And there's some yeah. books that I've encountered now where it literally says you've got to read this a hundred times. Think and Grow Rich is yeah. one of those books. Exactly. Yeah. So, and... But I've always had a great memory, so it's never like I pick it up because I've forgotten what I've read. Mm. It's like, there's certain things, like in the rule book that she gave me, the first one that she gave me, it it had it had like a quote in it that I've never forgotten to this day. And I may have even told you it before. It was like, through the operation that water seeks its level and everything in the universe alike like nature seeks its kind. I read that when I was 12 and I've never forgotten it to this day. Mm-hmm. It had the formula in it, like an R2A2 formula that was like recognize, relate, assimilate and apply whatever type of information or whatever you're coming across. So things like that, like always stuck with me. No, I love that. I love that. So going on from Think and Grow Rich, what other books would you say that uh, has left a... A big mark? Yeah, impactful. Um, When I was at Arsenal, my brother gave me The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. And I read that, I was about 13, 14. I used to read that on the way to training and on the way back. That was another one that like set off a spark. And then... From there, it just, it goes on. Like I read like The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. I read books about like health. So I read like African Holistic Health by Dr. Layla. You used to talk to me about, what's his face? Sorry, apologies. Um, so I'm going to say Nipsey Hussle. Nipsey Hussle yeah. and- um, Dr. Sebi. Thank and you. Dr. So, Sebi, yeah, we used to have big, yeah. big conversations about that. I was on that early. I started listening to Nipsey when I was in year seven. So like everything he used to yeah, say- big conversation used to, with Dr. Sebi. Recently. I used to pick up on it like Dr. Sebi. Water, that's the water. one. That's where I changed I my water thing. So from growing, because you used to tell me about spring water and tell yeah, me the difference between spring water and yeah. mineral water and that type of stuff. And I was a big fan of like Dick Gregory when I That's was like Dick 12. That's the one. And he put me onto like a lot of stuff as well. And I just started reading that. I was reading, because I went to school for psychology. So I read like a lot of psychology, yeah. like psychology books as well. So stuff like the ISIS papers by Dr. Francis Cress Wilson. Um, well, saying, sorry, all different types of stuff, man. Like Jane Elliott, um, a lot of research like uh, Don Elegan, who wrote a book called like Rap Therapy, which is where a lot of my research was based as well. So it was just reading uh, whatever I could get my hands on really at that point. And um, yeah, I'd be here for days, like the four agreements, the fifth agreements, like- Do you know them? No, I've never heard of them. Yeah, so it's basically like, it's another kind of like rule book that's based on like ancient Toltec principles of how they live their lives and like four principles that they hold key to their kind of like culture and stuff. Mm. And it kind of goes through each principle and breaks it down and kind of tells you how to apply it. So like the four principles is like, I'm off the top of my head. I'm gonna see if I can remember. Um, be impeccable with your word. Um, don't take things personally. Don't mm-hmm. make assumptions. And the fourth one I think is... Um, the fifth one I know is be skeptical, but it, in the sense like always question the source and stuff like that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. but like I would, those principles changed a lot for me as well. Like even things like don't take things personal and being impeccable with your word, like understanding that it's not necessary, like be impeccable with your word. It's kind of like word is bond, but it's also understanding like, are you accurately conveying the message that you're trying to deliver? Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's so easy for things to get lost in translation. So how good are you with the word that you're actually like using as well as obviously not using words to hurt yourself versus stuff like that. So the 
I mean, this uh, off topic. This like, where does someone at that age almost find time to read? Because everywhere, man. When you're a kid, all you have is time. I know the truth be told, like, that is fact. You know what I'm saying? Like you're playing those hours. You're playing PlayStation. <laughs> those hours you're on the bus. Those hours you're on the train. Like all of that well, stuff. Not everyone at that age is, is, is yeah. thinking and thinking. Like, no, it's because, true. Because, sorry, I'm saying this because at your trial would be at age of thirteen. Yeah. I'll be honest. I, th- I remember telling you. I probably had the text message. I remember telling him. I wrote. I wrote a diary entry about his trial. I was blown away. Mm-hmm. Blown away because this is what I remember from the trial. And I won't make it a prolonged story. A long story is we go to Ipswich. Mm-hmm. Go to Ipswich. First thing I see is oh they're not passing to him. So usual trial tricks. <laughs> mm-hmm. No one's passing to the player. All right to the trials because you know then no one wants him to be signed or whatever yeah. it is. I remember that. I don't want to say who they are because they'll probably know who they are. Mm. All right. I'm not going to say nothing. All right, cool. So they're not passing. Then out of nowhere, I remember you being aggressive and then I, then you get into a scuffle with someone and out of nowhere, everyone's backing him. Mm-hmm. Everyone on the team backed, I, I don't want to say the beef, game. but everyone backed yeah. it. And then there's people on the sideline going, you're a fucking player. No, like everyone's saying, he's a player, man. No one knows your tries, but everyone's mm-hmm. saying, this guy, he's about it. And then at halftime or on the third, because I don't know if you're playing thirds at the time, mm-hmm. um, Manager, I don't know his name. I remember you taking you lot behind the, um, I'm going to say the dugout. Yeah. And he, fuck, he, I saw, but he literally laid into you lot. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, someone who finally gets it. Yeah. But I was blown away at someone at age 13 can literally just take control of mm-hmm. a situation. Yeah, I remember that. not game, many really. people at that age can, because it was on a nine, truth be told. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that and I remember the Fulham trial was quite similar as well. Ah, so I didn't go to that. I probably yeah. left Fulham at that point. It wasn't uh, really a trial, but yeah. Yeah, because you played Fulham immediately after or not long after. No, you were signed no. and then you went to Fulham. Yeah, I was play. signed and then uh, and then we went to Fulham. But I mean, when I first went to Fulham, cool, sorry. it was the okay. same kind of thing. It was like one game, we played Crystal Palace and I remember Huge was like with one of the other guys who was working there at the time. But you didn't tell him who I was. So this is a story you told me after. And he was like, they came over to watch the game. And they were, he was kind of like the same thing. Like, yo, we got a player in that kid. But you was like, that's my kid. He was like, oh, like, mm. that was kind of crazy. But I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I would attribute it all to like the books and stuff. But I, I think a lot of it just came from a little bit of it's my older brother. But it's weird because... He probably reads more than I do now, but I probably started like heavy reading before he did. Mm-hmm. And it was a little bit of that and just growing up in the neighborhood, man. Like I grew up playing with people older than me my whole yeah. life. And it was always like, yo, it's the skinny, like short kid, like trying to bully me and stuff like that. And I was always small. So you had to fight for what you wanted. Otherwise you're not going to be heard or you're not going to get what you want. So like going into environments like that, it it didn't seem like, you know what I mean? It's just like, all right, this is another day on the estate yeah. or something like yeah. that. So, how often do you read now? Now I I read every day. It's part of like my routine at this point. Mm-hmm. But um, one thing I try to do as well is like I stay away from eat like online books and stuff like that. I only I try to only read like hard copies. Paperback or yeah, because yeah, it's just like it's at the point now where there's so much social media that reading is almost an escape. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And it's like if I pick up my laptop to read it feels like I'm just falling back into that so mm-hmm. I kind of use it to get away from that and kind of seclude myself from that and then also just like the nature of like understanding psychology like the way your brain works and how it's it's so much better for your brain to literally read paperback books than it is to look on the screen it's kind of like the lesser of two evils because you're getting the radiation from the screen versus when you're just it's so good for your brain like reading delays the onset of like um, dementia yeah, yeah, and yeah, stuff like yeah. that so just like knowing that it's like exercising yeah I definitely find reading the actual book is more beneficial than yeah. actually reading it from my iPad yeah. I mean I do book both when I need to but more often than not I'll have a yeah. stack of books to read mm-hmm. just turning the papers holding the actual book and yeah. getting that feel is, yeah. is esoteric it's, mm-hmm. yeah. it's a great feeling yeah and I want to, not even fast forwarding because I think you, you can take us to a whole nother level in terms of reading and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure reading has taken you, it's taken you places where, well, you can't really imagine really in mm-hmm. terms of your mind. Where are you now, whether it's with reading or with what you're doing in life? Because um, I didn't even know you finished uni. So my yeah. question to you the other day was like, what are you doing now? And <laughs> yeah. you're telling me you're here, you're there, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So what is it you're doing now? Um, So currently, re- like research, I make music at this point and just, yeah, really just working 
in the f- so the whole point the whole reason I went to like the sports company to try and marry like psychology and sports was kind of like America's a little bit behind in terms of like football and so it was kind of trying to implement the psychology of it into the sports of it and the reason I do research and I make music is because my research was in music therapy so my whole thing was I've always wanted to marry the two and kind of put them together and just understanding that like what's another way that we can reach kids and reach black kids specifically because throughout all my research and everything there were so many gaps in the research in terms of like black people going to therapy and just spaces for black men to even go and speak to someone yeah. and where the disconnect was and like why can't people engage them and i've always been a music lover so it was like it was like a no brainer it's like yo like and i think i may even have spoke to you years ago about it when i first got into it and it was just like yo like more times than not one of the things i realize is i probably don't even have to ask someone what they're going through i could just ask them what they're listening to mm-hmm. and when i ask them what they're listening to more times than not that's the gateway for me to know exactly what's going on in your life at that moment. And it holds true for most of my friends and most of the people that I've been around. So it was like, how do we connect it? And then I got into research in DC. So like one of the reasons I left Virginia was because Virginia was a bubble. It was the kind of bubble that a kid like me coming from where I came from needed. But after a year, it wears off and you start to realize, okay, I've gone to both extremes. I need to come back to find a balance now. So I was looking for certain mentorship in Virginia that I couldn't find. Like Virginia was a crazy experience. Like I tell people I could write a book on it alone, like just Virginia. And it was the first time I'd been around people that were that affluent, people who came from generational wealth Mm. and just seeing the way they behaved and their patterns of behavior versus mine. And you don't realize like how materialistic London is until you leave. Mm -hmm. You don't realize how fast you're forced to grow up here till you leave. And when I got to Virginia and people are asking me like, yeah, so like, where you coming from? What you been up to? Like, and I'm telling them everything I'm done. They're looking at me like I'm crazy. Like you, and I speak to my friends about this all the time. Like you grow up in London, by the time you're 12, 13, you have to know how to navigate the city. Mm. You have to know how to get to and from school. You got to know where you can and you can't go, Mm -hmm. where you're going to get into trouble. Mm. And if you don't know these things by year seven, year eight, you're going to find out real quick. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's it's the kids that weren't street smart that got in the most trouble like after school because they didn't know where they could go. So if you don't know these things, there's going to be a lesson waiting for you at some point after school. And then you learn. Kids in America that I went to school with at 13 are still getting bused to school on a yellow bus. They don't even know how to move in their own towns and cities. So Mm. they grow up like a lot slower. Mm. So you realize that like on one hand, you become a lot more street smart and mature, but you get robbed of a certain innocence that you could have a lot longer that gives you a bit more time to like grow up. So being around that kind of money as well. And I remember one time, I remember it happened a couple of times, but there was two times. By the time I left London, I had like thrown most of my clothes away. Like we used to get like money, especially like, you know, for travel and stuff like that. But you didn't really need money for travel. So you kind of looked at it like you was getting paid as a young like kid playing football. At that time, you got nothing to spend money on other than shoes, clothes, and all this kind of stuff. So you kind of get trapped in that. And by the time I'd left to move to America, I was kind of over it. I was yeah, like, this yeah. is dumb. Mm. You know, it was almost like using those those materials to overcompensate for what you was lacking inside yeah, kind of yeah. thing. Oh. And it's like, it's cool when you're a grown man and you know who you are. But as a kid, when you're that young, you got some things to figure out before you, you can kind of subscribe to that. So I remember two instances when I first moved out to America, before I moved in with the host family, I was staying at the Marriott Hotel. They put me in the Marriott Hotel. And I remember coming downstairs one day for breakfast and there was a guy sitting maybe like over there, like maybe where the camera is. And he had on a black scarf, but it had like a white tag. So the contrast kept catching my eye. And when I looked at it, it had Gucci on the white tag, but I was confused. I'm coming from a place where the only Gucci I recognize has green and red stripes on it. Mm. And if it doesn't have that, I don't know what it is. Mm. So I'm thinking to myself, he's definitely got money because I started Googling it and looking at it and you realize that all these designer brands create two lines at least. Mm. There's one for the people we want you to feel like you got something, but you don't. Mm. And we got one for the people that really got something that don't care and don't need you to know that they're, mm. in, they, they're in it. And so when that happened, I was like, all right, cool. Then the second time, one of my closest friends in my first year of uni, generational wealth, family came from, from, from money, right? I'm not even gonna say like how they made it, but it was like, 
it was to do with um, tech, but early tech in terms of like phone wires and telephone wires. And like, so she had bread, but it took me forever to even know she really had money like that. Like she would shop at the thrift store. She'd have one pair of shoes and like, and I'm thinking, why is my suitcase got stuff worth more than yours and you really have it and I don't? Like, what is, this doesn't make any sense. And it was a constant, like everyone I met that came from it. And then it's like, you get to the holidays, it's like the, the winter break and then they got like the spring breaks and everyone's going to the to the beach house in Miami or the, the penthouse in upstate New York. And you're thinking, bro, I don't even have money to get back to London. Where am I going? And that was like, kind of what kind of like popped the bubble a little bit. Cause it was like, that year in Virginia was really the first time I was able to kind of let my guard down and have fun mm. without having to look over my shoulder and worry mm. about what's coming or having to. So it was like a necessary thing, but then it's like, you snap out the bubble, life over there hasn't stopped. You kind of tell yourself like, oh, things aren't happening, but you catch up with what's going on back home. And it's like, all right, cool. This isn't a luxury I can afford right now. This might be the next generation or the generation after, but for me, we still got work to do. We can't be this. So then that's when I was like, all right, let's go to DC. And that was where I found the mentorship and the kind of guidance that I needed. Started doing research with, um, in a research lab that's actually like taken off as well. So my mentor, Dr. Fia Emily Shaka, she started a research lab called Psychotherapy. So it was using hair as an entry point into mental health services. And when you start to look at the research in hair and everything, it's like, your stress and all your trauma shows in your hair because your hair is literally an extension of your nervous system. So if you're stressed out, if you're angry, if you're depressed, it's going to show in your hair, mm. literally. And when you think about like black people and their history with hair and you start to look at what hair is meant to black people, like it's deep. You know what I'm saying? Like you had slaves who were using their hair as maps to get away from plantations. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the history heavy. of the hair is heavy. And then you got to think about like, the social aspect of hair in terms of like what certain black people have to do to even be able to go to work with mm. their hair, mm -hmm. the straightening, the heat, the perming, all this stuff that fits into a Eurocentric standard mm -hmm. of beauty that's not ours and how that affects people psychologically. Mm. So it was like learning all of this and realizing like, yo, like even like my mom and stuff, I had to come back with this information and be like, yo, you can't use this shampoo. You can't use this. Like this stuff is like purposely made to damage your type of texture. Mm. And if you don't understand the texture of your hair, you're already killing the root. This is the, 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 the one of the most important parts of your body. Your brain is not that far under the top of your head. <laughs> so imagine you putting chemicals in that and, yeah. and it's going straight to your brain. Do you know what I'm saying? And it, it was a lot. It was a lot for me to process. Bro, you are, let me say something, yeah. I don't take him back. He is. It's a lot now. Nah, bro. I don't care what these two buffoons feel. This guy's matching. Go on, let's scratch that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke. We, we could take nah, it outside. Nah, bro. nah, nah. <laughs> nah, real talk. Nah, bro. You're wise beyond your words because you know, the maddest thing is my barber, who has been cutting, studying hair mm -hmm. for years upon years, bruv. He feeds me this info. Yeah. And I'm speaking to you here. You're not a hair specialist. Nah, no. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. And he. He'll go to cut my hair, yeah? And he'll tell me, you're not drinking your water. Yeah. You're stressed, you got these bumps here. Mm hmm Or he'll, he'll go, yeah, you're right at the moment because I can see it in your, in your scalp. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all there. mad, bro. All the information it's is mad, there. bro. And mm. it works like that with your entire body. Whatever you put in your body will show on your face, yeah. on your hair. Like, you can't hide it. And that was one of the things that I had to learn. And even when I had started growing my hair, like, I didn't really know what I was doing with my hair. But it was more so just like, I'm just going to listen to my hair and let it go. And then, you know, naturally your hair will lock as a black person if you your hair is a specific texture and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But just, it took me on an entire journey. And after after salute, my mentor, Dr. Fia Emily Shaka, she was, she, was, she was one of my mentors. I had a couple that really just hit home. And she would do my hair and say the same thing. It'd be like, yo, like this in your diet. And the way she put it mm. to me was, don't put nothing in your hair that you wouldn't necessarily put you wouldn't eat and put it inside your body. So it was learning like the different natural products and stuff like that. And one of the things actually that we ended up doing, I started going to presentation to, to make presentations at different research conferences with the research that we were doing. And that was one of the things we like we put together because hers was hair, mine was like music therapy. How could we link the two? 
And the first thing that we suggested was creating, like making the barbershop a safe space for black people to talk about their mental health. Because you think about it, your barber's pretty much like your therapist anyway. You talk to your barber about everything. You have barbers that have been cutting people's hair their whole lives. Life. 25, 30 years. He knows mm. you, your dad, your, mm -hmm. your baby. The, the rapport is already there. So whether it's coupling barbers with um with therapists or teaching barbers different techniques to kind of talk to the people that sit in their chair. And that was kind of one of the aspects that we went down. And we went to a, to a couple conferences and kind of delivered that and was kind of like, how can we make this a thing? So that was also one of the things that I was trying to do in my time in America was kind of start these programs and do these different things. Yeah. And we've like, sorry, you, with the information that you actually, you have and you've told us, what mm -hmm. are you actually trying to do at this moment in time? Right. Cause I want to mm -hmm. read that book. I'm yeah. not going to lie. You, you said I could write, I, I want to read yeah. that book. Um, so one of the things when I first, so the way I guess like scientific writing works, obviously you've done like all the, the research and you've done the experiments and stuff, you submit it to journals. So I, over the last like four or five years, I've been working on manuscripts to go to scientific journals but I also want to write like my own books that speak on my experiences. But then there's also music. Cause the one thing I realized as well is like in academic spaces, we don't have that much representation, the higher you go up. And my thing is they're always looking at where's your credibility. It, the equivalent of it would be like, in order to go into a lot of scientific spaces, if you was a musician, you'd either have to have be Grammy nominated or you would have to have a Grammy for them to even respect you. In academic writing, it's the same. If you're not a published writer, you really hold no weight out mm -hmm. here. So that was the reason I wanted to get research published. Cause my thing is, I, f I feel like I need to be able to walk into any door and be able to tell you what I know and you have to respect it. Mm -hmm. So when I was going to these conferences and these places and I'm going to these Ivy League schools and they got four or five degrees, mm -hmm. I'm still walking in there the same way I walked on that field the first time it's like you don't know what i know what i know you can't pay for there's no degree that can teach you how to connect to my people do you know what i'm saying so it was always like all right if i got this i got that and i have the music and the goal is to create these programs where we can use music and have music therapy i have everything to make me credible that i don't need to rely on anyone else or feel like i'm walking into a room where i'm not prepared or i don't have the know-how to kind of navigate so it was just about making sure I had all the bases covered. And it was also, it, to an extent, I enjoy it. So it was it made it easier to kind of do all of that. So long term, it would be to kind of create these programs and start to do music therapy and stuff like that, as well as just making music because it's a form of expression. Like music at this point for me, like it doesn't matter whether we sell sell a million or we never ever sell anything. It's a form of expression. Like everybody needs an outlet. Do you know what I'm saying? If you put something into a, a into, I don't know, a vending machine, something comes out. If you punch something into a computer, something comes out. There's always an input and an output. But for most people, all they do is input information and stuff and there's no output. You're literally like, it's like a brain fart or creating mental constipation. So if give you an example of that. So a lot of people put information into a computer and they don't- get And they don't get anything out. For instance, like going through whatever you're going through, you might be stressed because of your bills, your work, whatever, everything that you take in and there's no outlet. There's so many people that bottle Very up so. their emotions and don't talk about it. Like they just don't have anyone to talk <clears> to or whatever the case may be. And if you don't let it out, you're going to get constipated. It's like taking a dump. If you put food inside you and you don't let it out, you're going to be constipated and you're going to get sick. Most people, if you look it up even psychologically, they tell you that people get sick by holding on to information and like holding on to things and not letting it out. That's like one of the quickest ways to get to shut your body down and get sick is by constipating yourself by just holding it in. So it's like, how do we create an outlet? And when people think about like why music's so important. So I read a lot of books on like music and why music is as big as it is and why it controls the whole world pretty much. It's because when you break it down to a science, like music is frequency and it's waves. That's all this planet is pretty much made of is waves and frequencies, everything. Mm -hmm. A conversation is waves and frequency. So every single person that you meet is literally a walking instrument. You have a heartbeat, you have like a pulse, which is like a drum kick. 
you speak in iambic pentameter, which is rhythm and rhyme, you're literally a walking instrument. And if you send waves at an instrument, that instrument is either going to go up in frequency, down in frequency, but it's going to have some type of reaction. So it's literally like music's like a, the mo one of the most natural things like in life. So it was just more so about finding an outlet. Like how can we, how can we pretty much let whatever's coming in out? And so that's where like the music came into it. And uh, I've always, I've always been, I've always been writing. Even when I was playing football, I really didn't tell many people, but I always wrote whether it was poetry or whether it was whatever. So my thing is just like, we need more outlets for people. Mm -hmm. So you got any questions? No, no, I was intrigued. Just, just listen to your story, man. It's amazing. Cool. I probably got one, one last question. It's more a case of maybe just dumbing down one or two things for yeah. myself. All right. So, um, by putting out these journals or giving the, or, or so allowing these journals to be given credibility. So I don't know necessarily where you submit them. Mm -hmm. By submitting them and then having the credibility, you then want to use those as a form of. Um, I don't want to use the word credibility again, but yeah. to allow you to then run programs and stuff like that. Um, no, because like the way I guess it would work is you got to have certain qualifications to do certain things, right? Okay. So like I was literally, I was going to go get my PhD when I was in America, when I had finished. I, I got offered like two scholarships that would have covered tuition, but the housing was crazy. But then at a certain point, I was just kind of like, I don't even know. Because I, to be quite honest, I've never liked school. I've never liked it. I went to school because I just feel, feel think life's funny like that. Like you say you'd never do something and then like the only way to get to where you want to go is like I had to go to school. So that was my compromise. It was like, I got to humble myself and go to school to get to this new surrounding. So I never really liked school. And even when I was there, there was times where I felt like, I don't want to do this but my brother was always like yo you're going for free like you're leaving school with no debts you're in a brand new country like make the most of it and mm -hmm. if and and you start to realize that school's not to get an education it's really to network yeah. like it's really to go there and have conversations and meet people that you're gonna be working with and you know what i'm saying and when like i have friends now that went to ivy league schools like yale and stuff and when I sit with them and I have conversations, it's so far from the conversations that I have when I'm with like my friends from, from the ends or whatever. But the one thing I realize is the reason they all get sent to those Ivy League schools is so they all know each other. Mm -hmm. That's literally all mm -hmm. it is. You mm -hmm. have a network of people that are going on to be Fortune 500 billionaires and owners of companies and he's your best friend. Mm. That's it. Like that's literally the only reason. And like when I speak to them and I talk to them about that kind of stuff, they literally say the same thing. So it's really just like an opportunity to network and it gives you time to kind of find yourself in the midst of that if you do it right. Because there's a lot of things that can go wrong in that process. And like even, I initially went on a scholarship to play, to kick ball. But even that was like a whole experience in itself, dealing with like the NCAA, which is like a completely different machine. That's like this billion dollar industry and it's kids that are still in school. They're not even professionals. And I signed a contract at Fulham I signed a contract at Arsenal. I've never seen a contract like the contract I saw the first day I turned up to school to sign that contract. And it was when I saw that contract, I was like, damn, they got me. Like, they got me. Like, In what sense? I turned up late. So, first of all, the contract's like 400 pages. This isn't a professional contract. It's 400 pages. Mm. Any contract that's 400 pages, like, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And they were expecting me to just go in there and just sign it. And it's like, it should take you 10 minutes. Just go in there. I sat in the room for like an hour, mm. just reading through this contract. And like the things that I'm seeing in this contract, I couldn't believe it. But in my mind, it was like, I'm here. Yeah. Like to, to now walk out this room and go after everything that we sacrificed to get here would be crazy. And then when you start to dig and you start to like learn about like the NCAA and how some of these athletes in America are living, they're not professionals, but they're generating billions of dollars for schools. Mm -hmm. yeah. You got whole schools in America, all the salaries are paid off of the money that the sports teams generate. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's crazy. And some of these kids go to sleep hungry. Some of them, they make no money from it. And it's not even necessary that they should make money from it. But when you understand how much money is being it's generated by college, often, by college sports, it's debated often, like all the time. Mm. And it's a huge conversation that's going on about the NCAA. And like, you got so many people in America who don't even watch pro sports, but they watch college sports. You got stadiums in, in college teams like filled out. filled out every game. Like American football stadiums in college holding 90, 100,000 in like Alabama and Texas selling out all year tickets. Mm. 
Do you know what I'm saying? And this is before any of them are pro or whatever. Wow. And they don't get pennies. And they don't get a penny. Wow. Some of them don't even get, get food. It's, it's wild. So even that was like an experience in itself and just seeing what that... And I was at like one of the best schools in the country. Like Virginia was like one of the best schools for sports and even education. It was like a top 20 school at the time as well. But even going there was just like... I think by that time I was already checked out of like kicking ball. But it was like, this is your meal ticket. Like, so even when I look back and people are like, yo, like, what did, did you like, did, do you regret like not playing ball or not going pro or whatever? I'm like, nah, man. Like I got everything I needed. You know what I mean? It got me a ticket away from where I didn't want to be. Mm. Took me across the world. Like I got to travel. I got to see so much. So like, I never look at it. Like I didn't do what I needed to do with it. So this is almost you're talking about football so I just want to touch back on it mm -hmm. so like I kind of forget so I remember obviously I know we know Marlon yeah. Marlon plays for Millwall yeah. play, he played in the playoff cup final yeah. I forget where they really went or lost uh -huh. so no he played in the FA Cup semi-final yeah, yeah. one or two alright cool so who who played in your age group because I mentioned Joe mm -hmm. Willick the other day and stuff like that because I knew I don't know yeah. how old he is but I know they're roughly yeah. so your age so Joe is like the youngest of three he had an older brother Chris and Matt yeah. Matt was my age he was like the youngest in our age group Chris, I think is playing like in Portugal now for a team. That is it, Sporting. Sporting, yeah. Sporting yeah, Sporting that was like a big deal. I yeah, remember that. A that was deal. a big deal like last right. year, the year before. And so they were both younger than me by maybe two years or more, but they used to train up because they were capable. Good. Like, and I swear, I can't even remember whether it was Chris or Joe, but one of them scored the dirtiest goal I've ever seen in academy football in my life. Like, I don't know if it's Chris or Joe. I want to say it's Joe. And like, this goal was absurd. Like, I remember watching the game after we had training on a weekend and um, he's got the ball from like the right back in the middle. He's playing centre mid, switched it over to the left flank. When I got the ball again, pinged it out to the right wing, like controlling the game, like done a one-two in the middle of the park, switched it out to the right wing. He's jogged to the edge of the box. And I remember the ball getting crossed back to him on the edge of the box and like a defender's coming at him. Mm -hmm. This defender thinks that he's about to volley the ball like top bins. He's faked it and flicked the ball so. up to his left foot. Mm. This defender's got sent to the shops like over there somewhere, <laughs> Quay. The second defender's come and he's like bottom corner with his left foot just like drilled it into the light. So even then you knew like, yo, those kids were were cool. But I played with like Alex Awobi. He was in my team. Mm -hmm. um, who else? Like Faye, my boy Faye. He's playing at Shrewsbury at the moment. He's been doing like really well. I played with Jermaine Anderson. He was at Peterborough for a long time and now he's at Bradford, I think it is. And like a couple other people, like Chuba Akpom was in my team. Yeah, you always mentioned him. Yeah, he was in my team as well. But they were like on the top half of my age group because they were like 95s and we were 96s. So like the core of our team was like really young. So it was like Chuba, who else was in our team? Like Jack Jeb and like a couple other guys. There was like quite a few people. And then obviously towards the end is when like Gideon, Hector and those guys kind of came. But they were a little bit like older as well. So I played with uh, a few people here. Yeah. Quite a few people. Yeah, there was quite a few. What, what book would you say? Switch it back to books now. Yeah. What book would you say you've read which has had the most impact or influence on your life so far? <sighs> That's a tough one. Um, I'd say The Alchemist is one of them, for sure, just because of where I was at the time. And I was starting to like explore like spirituality a lot more. So it was like a gateway. Um, another book that I really loved or had a big impact. Mm. I would say A Rose from the Concrete by Tupac Shakur was something that, something that had a big impact on me as well. Cause I've always been like a huge hip hop head. So reading like that was cool. Um, since it is covering French's three questions. Oh, sorry. Uh, there's just so many, man. And each book's different. Like each book is so different. Like I've, I've read so many. Like I read the uh, the autobi. I've I've read quite a few autobiographies as well. Like I I recently finished the autobiography of Che Guevara. That was okay. a really good one. That. I've not that, read it yet. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, Asada Shakur, who was like a Black Panther. That was a good one. I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. That was a really big one as well. Mm -hmm. That had like a big impact on me. Um. And then everything in between, like, there's so much, like, 
uh, on the other end of it, like books like the Celestine Prophecy. <laughs> I read that. That was like a, a really good read that had an impact on me. There's so many, man. So many books. Like, I don't know if I can narrow it down mm-hmm, to just mm-hmm. like... Just one. one. Yeah. Oh, I Sorry, and before we see probably finish or wrap up, like, um, do you want to just touch on your music? Because I know your music is something that's been pushed to the forefront. Like, yeah, yeah. it's been pushed to the forefront. So do you want to touch touch on your music? I mean, you have in relation to therapy, yeah. but just in relation to um, maybe some of the things you're doing. Yeah, so some of the things that we've just been doing is really just making music freely, really, just to like kind of make whatever we want. And when you start to like get closer to like the industry and all the politics that come with it and stuff. You just kind of realize like, yo, like it's either you're going to do exactly what you want and not compromise or you're going to go over there and like be a sheep. Like a lot of it, like what Nipsey said, like I think Nipsey instilled like a lot of the values that I have when like I approach music and it's just really just ownership. Like I think the biggest thing for me and like what we've been trying to do is just create ownership and just full control of what we're doing so we can do it when we do it, when we want to, how we want to and not have to deal with anyone trying to tell us like what to do so it's a bit more than music it's we literally we have like a uh an imprint called cs that we've been developing and just working on and it kind of spans across like music clothing culture and just different aspects of who we are as people and trying to bring all my friends in and like the umbrella and stuff like that yeah and how can people reach you in relation to your music and just um, in general. Yeah, so on all... Because there's been a lot of information we've digested. I'm sure people might want to contact. <laughs> yeah, um, so on all social medias, all my social medias are the same. It's Zaire, Z-A-I-R-E underscore C-S. And that's pretty much on all social medias. If they, I dropped like a, an EP in April called The Lowest Moonstone EP. And that's available on like all platforms and stuff. If they go on SoundCloud, they'll find like older stuff of us just like experimenting a little bit more and just like, learning uh i guess music and stuff so yeah that's pretty much what i've been up to i guess for the most part and a lot of people don't even really know because i've never been like someone to be like yo i'm doing this i'm doing that so like a lot of people ask me all the time like what are you up to where do you even live right now like where have you been and stuff like that so i just kind of keep it in-house and just keep working and stuff like that and just try to stay out the way really yeah so you just have vacation at the moment um, technically I'm here on vacation, but it could get longer just cause of like the way the visa process works okay. and stuff like that. And that's affected by everything, politics and mm-hmm. what's currently going on in the world and everything. So it can be a, like a drawn out process. Um, yeah, before we go, I mean, I normally ask three questions, but I'll ask mm-hmm. the last two. What are the three top values that you bring to your business or in what, what you do on a day-to-day basis? what I do on a day-to-day basis, the values that I bring. Um, I definitely say like, I'm a trailblazer for one. Like I really jump out the window with a lot of things and kind of set the tone, especially like I think my the team that I have and everyone will kind of say the same thing. He's kind of like the trailblazer. Two, just like that first for information as well. And just like going out there and really finding what it is that I'm looking for at the current time, whether it's, how to do something or how to do something else. And um, the third thing I'd say, balance in everything. Like balance is big for me. And that's probably the thing I try to exercise the most in my life is balance. You know, like I understand how important routine is, Mm -hmm. but I also understand that routine can also be a prison. So understanding the balance between having a routine and also being free to kind of maneuver and leave space for anything that life might give you back. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could replace any of them, I think I'd actually replace one because I think one of the things that I've learned about myself, like the the my best quality is probably my emotional intelligence. That's one thing that I've realized I have a, a very good grasp on that's helped me navigate throughout the world. And like for anyone who's like thinking like, what's it, emotional intelligence? It's not just necessarily understanding your feelings, but it's understanding how your feelings affect you, how they affect others around you and how other people's feelings affect you and how it also affects like the energy in a room. Like, I think I'm really good at like reading energy and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much helped me navigate my whole life. Cool. Um, and what free, if you had free realistic wishes, what would they be? Free realistic wishes from like what I'd want from life or something? Yeah. <laughs> that's a good question. Cause I was recently having that conversation with someone and I realized that I don't, I really, 
if if I had to force wishes out, because the one thing I've realized is that I don't really want anything from life anymore. Mm-hmm. I used to live life thinking that I wanted all these things and stuff, but I to th- this period of my life is the first time I could say where I do not need anything from life. There's nothing life can give me that's going to make me happier, worse, or whatever. Like I am full. I'm con- like content, happy within myself. So anything that I desire at this point is for everyone else around me. Mm-hmm. Like if my mom was good and my mom like didn't have bills to pay and stuff like that and all my friends were good, bro, I wouldn't need anything. With the clothes that's on my back and everything that I've got, like I am so good. Mm-hmm. Like everything is for everyone else at this point. So it would just, my one wish would be to make sure everyone else around me was good and the other two you could give to whoever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't need them, man. Oh, I'll put that. Never too for everyone else. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm nicking the other one. <laughs> Everything is for everyone else. Yeah, man. I really don't need it. Number two. Yeah, no, that's dope. That's dope. Listen, Chris, thank you. Is everyone wrapped up? Yeah, thank you for joining us. Nah, bro. it's been a pleasure, man. Bro, it's Yo, been time big, flies. I like. It's been wicked, bro. Yeah, Hopefully I enjoyed it. it. Thank you for having me, guys. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe. Um, fully booked on all the social platforms. Say your say so say your. Oh yeah, so Zaire underscore CS. That's Z A I R E underscore CS on everything. Yeah, if you want that knowledge, you know where it's <laughs> at. Bro.